greater risk taking. So, um, you know, sort of engaging in um, reckless driving, you know, substance abuse, unsafe sexual practices. Um, and some people would argue this may help explain this one finding, um, looking at children who are rated um, in terms of their um, dispositional cheerfulness um, and followed them longitudinally over the lifespan. And what you find is that children who are rated as more highly cheerful actually had um, greater uh, mortality risk later in life. Um, there could be many reasons to account for this, but I think... <laughs> I think one, one possibility might be, um, at least you know, tentatively, that there's something about heightened positive emotion beyond a critical threshold um, that we need to be really careful of and really think about keeping it in balance. And in my lab, we try to study this in the clinical context of individuals suffering from emotional disorders. Um, and one entry point that we've begun to look at it um, are among individuals with mania that at least show some characteristic signs of heightened positive emotion and sort of this appetitive system that's kind of go, go, go towards rewards and finding, not surprisingly, that these are individuals who engage in all kinds of reckless behaviors. They wipe out their bank accounts. They destroy some um, most important social bonds in their lives with their partners through just, you know, lots of sort of sexual promiscuity. And they will report when you talk to them, and we, you know, interview a lot of these people clinically, that they just felt so good that nothing else, you know, sort of could enter their mind. That it was sort of a one mind that was really all about feeling good and, and, you know, finding ways to keep that going. And so I think this first theme, and it's a really new theme, I think really needed a lot more empirical attention on it. But at least what it's beginning to suggest is something about um, perhaps human nature that, you know, suggests that maybe we need to put aside these conventional notions of trying to maximize positive emotions. And that positive emotion may be in line with many psychological states um, that are subject to this principle of moderation, that we really want to be experiencing things in balance, not too little or not too much. And in many ways, it's also consistent, you know, just with biological theories, sort of postulating optimal functioning and sort of moving towards a sense of, you know, homeostasis or equilibrium. And so I think um, this is important because it suggests that a realm of psychology that's getting a lot of pop, cul uh, pop culture attention um, really needs to sort of be cautious and, and think a bit ba about you know, in these interventions that are being discussed, how can we keep it in line with a sense of moderation? Um, so that's one thing that's been getting attention in the past couple years that I think is interesting. The one thing that m comes next that I find even more fascinating is the idea of context, right? So I've been talking about positive emotions very generally, and I haven't been talking about sort of when do they occur? What is the timing? And if we think about sort of a functional approach to emotions. Um, the idea is that they have functions, but the functions are really tied to a specific context. So emotions are geared to help us, you know, uh, find opportunities, solve challenges, respond to immediate threats. Um, and, and inherent in that definition is that they arise in this particular context in which those goals are activated. And so when we think about the function, thinking about positive emotion now, we greatly need to consider the context in which it occurs. Um, we can all probably readily imagine times when we're hanging out with friends, and it's a wonderful appropriate context to you know, experience amusement, experience joy. Um, but there's many contexts in which that would absolutely not be productive and may you know, lead to rupturing you know, professional relationships if you're laughing inappropriately, 
or you know if you're in a dangerous life-threatening situation you don't want to sort of be standing back content at the world around you right um, and so I think for me this is the con the the piece of positive emotion that I've been most interested in and I think has some of the um, most powerful impl implications at least for affective scientists in terms of how we think about emotion emotion regulation um, and understanding and so I, I think of this you know I start with negative emotions because those are the ones that have received still to the state the most attention um, and we can think of anger for example it mobilizes us to sort of um, you know overcome obstacles or fear that alerts us to threat and danger in the environment these are obvious functions I don't think many of us would disagree with but when we think about the role of distinct kinds of positive emotions what role do they serve well we know things um, in general we th I talk at a general valence level of positive emotions, they're thought to sort of, you know, uh, in many ways help us pursue personal goals and facilitate cooperative behavior. And you can take a more nuanced perspective and look at the discrete types or distinct flavors of positive emotion. And there you see wonderful taxonomies that are now being developed saying that, you know, certain emotions like gratitude have very different functions from pride, very different functions from feelings of contentment and awe or inspiration. So we all, we see that not only does the sort of family of positive emotion have some sort of broad-based function, but that each individual variety or flavor of positive emotion serves a really important goal in our lives. Um, and so the important point I'm trying to make here is that positive emotions are really, um, you know, suited to perform a function. And so um, in many ways, um, when you experience positive emotions in a context that doesn't match that function, then here's where we're finding that you know difficulties arise and that we shouldn't be trying to promote positive emotions at all times and in all situations and for all people for that matter. Um, and there's been a couple interesting findings that have come out in the last couple years that I think really hit this home. Um, one of them is by a psychologist Maya Tamir and she did a study looking at what kinds of affective states promote um, successful outcomes on competitive tasks. And so she did a task um, that involved a competitive uh, computer game with another opponent. And participants were experimentally um, induced into either a positive mood state, um, which was a sort of high arousal state of, that many people would say is something like excitement or joy, um, compared to individuals in an angry mood state, right? Which is also this sort of appetitive um, high arousal state and then there was a neutral comparison condition. And then after that, people played this competitive computer task, and she found that those who performed the best on this task were not the people that were induced into the sort of highly positive arousing uh, mood state, but those who were angry, she would say. Um, and this has a lot of implications in thinking about, you know, when you're trying to overcome obstacles and in some competitive situation, there may be something about anger that helps motivate the kinds of behaviors that could lead to successful outcomes. Now, that doesn't mean that we should be angry all the time when we're competing, but it just suggests that, you know, depending on what your goal is in life, um, and if your goal is to win in some competitive situation, that at least we know that um, highly arousing positive states may not be the affective state or path that's gonna get you there the best. Um, we've also looked at the context of experiencing positive emotions and everyday social interactions with romantic partners. Um, and so what we did is we brought romantic couples into the lab who had been in long-term relationships. Um, so these are perhaps our most 
you know, highly valued social relationships in our entire life um, and highly ecologically valid in the context of trying to understand emotional dynamics between two people. And what we asked people to do was to think of a time in their life where they experienced great suffering or personal loss and to share that with their partner. And then we had the partner report the kinds of emotions that they experienced um, after hearing their partner tell this, you know, time of suffering or loss. Now, many of you might imagine that, you know, if you could list a, a sort of array of emotions that would be a, appropriate in that circumstance, both to accurately sort of interpret the significance of what your partner is saying and, you know, uh, be connected to them empathically, might range from things like sadness, um, frustration, to even compassion, which is an interesting emotion that has elements of both positive and negative feelings. Um, what we found, though, is in this particular sample, and this had both healthy community adults and individuals on a spectrum um, of, of clinical, uh, you know, clinical sort of symptoms of mania, is that the, the, the higher people were on the spectrum of having symptoms of mania, the more they reported feeling positive during this interaction. And by positive, these were feelings of joy, um, amusement, um, and even contentment. So what we were finding is that not only are sort of signatures of emotional dysfunction um, we, you know, associated with experiencing positive emotions in an appropriate context, but that this is not surprisingly predictive of decreased relationship satisfaction. Um, so it just tells us something about um, the importance of context in experiencing positive emotions. And this may seem really obvious and in some ways really trivial, but I think every time I hear or see some book that tells you how to sort of maximize happiness and to think of three great things every day and to sort of, you know, constantly try to use this, you know, facial feedback, you know, monitoring to sort of put a smile on your face, what I don't see in it is sort of under what context is that appropriate, right? Um, and so I always worry that you know, what we need to be stressing more of is that emotions um, really only serve their function best in particular contexts in which they were suited for. So I think for me, this says something important about positive emotion, but also sort of our emotional states as human beings in general, um, insofar as it suggests that any kind of emotional state is only adapted for, adapted for us insofar as it has a particular fit with the um, environmental demands or needs in that situation. Um, and that in many ways, um, there are no sort of absolute value judgments we can place on emotions to call them adaptive or maladaptive, good or bad. Um, and this goes for emotion regulation as well as a field where we no longer can call certain kinds of strategies like reappraisal adaptive or behavioral suppression where we don't show expressivity in our face maladaptive. That um, this just isn't the way that these emotional states work. Um, nothing is inherently adaptive or maladaptive. So that's a second theme that I think has been getting a lot of attention is sort of what people will call context or the context sensitivity of our emotional states, behaviors, and associated regulation strategies. Um, and I think the third theme, and this is the one that I find um, perhaps the most important when we think about setting goals for ourselves um, in our everyday lives is thinking about how do we set goals that will make us feel more positive, right? Um, and, you know, there's a lot of strategies out there about how to maximize feelings of positivity, 
um, you know, there's ideas that there's certain ratios we should try to obtain or, you know, certain kinds of frequencies in which we should experience positive emotions. And I think for me, when I think about this, um, to one, it suggests to me we care a lot about as human beings about experiencing pleasant feelings, um, maximizing them and trying to make them last, you know, as long as possible. And um, especially in the U.S., this seems sort of ingrained in the way we think about you know, what our rights are. You know, we have this notion of, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that this is sort of a culturally embedded value, and positive emotions are at the forefront. They're hypercognized. We have, you know, a lot of, a lot of t um, words for them, and we, we put a lot of emphasis on them. Um, but I think the bottom line in all of this, and I'll tell you some, what I think are really interesting studies, um, by Iris Mouse at UC Berkeley is that we spend a lot of time trying to find ways to make ourselves feel positive. People call this feeling happy often colloquially and I think recent science suggests that we're going about it all in the wrong way. Um, and in fact um, research is finding that the more people one spend time and effort trying to increase how positive they feel and two the more they sort of set as the end goal point feeling more positive, that they actually somewhat paradoxically set themselves up to feel less of that very state. Um, so there's been work looking at um, individuals in laboratory studies um, where people are told, um, for example, try to make yourself feel as happy as possible, you know, while listening to a piece of music. And those people that are told to do that, not surprisingly, report feeling less positive, right? Um, and if you look at people who report these kind of tendencies on a daily life, so endorsing items such as, you know, I spend a lot of time trying to feel happy or I go out of my way to sort of select activities that I think are going to bring me pleasure, that I think are going to make me feel good. If you bring these people into the laboratory and put them in contexts that are ostensibly positive, like you're watching a positive film or reading a positive sort of vignette, that it's in those circumstances that they feel or self-report less positive affect, that you see it even more pronounced um, than compared to a negative film or some neutral film. And the idea that um, researchers have tried to explain these sort of paradoxical findings is kind of thinking, kind of going back to sort of just basic theories on human goal pursuit. Um, you know, that the goals that people value determine what standards they're gonna set for achieving those goals. Um, and in many ways, um, you can think of, for example, someone who highly values academic achievement, right? They place a lot of value on that goal. It's likely they're going to subsequently set a very high standard for achieving that goal. So in many ways, the more we seem to value experiencing positive emotion, whether it is excitement or pride or love um, or contentment, the more we sort of set that as our emotional value system, inadvertently probably the higher we're going to set a threshold for achieving it um, and subsequently set up ourselves for disappointment. And um, we've seen research sort of translating this to the clinical science realm recently, finding that um, people who highly value the experience of positive emotion and who put behavioral energy towards obtaining it, they're at greater risk for depression. Um, and they subsequently report at, at baseline cross-sectionally too, a greater incidence of uh, a clinical diagnosis of major depressive disorder. And so we really see that this is telling us something profound about just the kinds of goals we set for ourselves. And for me, I think this is an important thing um, to translate to human nature because it suggests that, you know, 
the amount of our positive emotion is really affected amount by the effort we put into it. And it's almost this ironic effect. I mean, we know that the more we try not to think about white bears, we, we think about white bears, and in many cases, the more we try not to be unhappy, the more unhappy we seem to be. So it suggests in many ways that, um, you know, there is this sort of paradoxical backfiring. And in many ways that if we want to have you know, affective or psychological goals for ourselves that we ought not to make that the end focal point in itself, but perhaps to be focusing on other things from which those emotions might emerge. So, I mean, just in closing, thinking about um, what positive emotion can tell us, not just about positive emotion, um, but more general about human nature, I think, is that the relationship, I think, between our feelings and perhaps this goes for our thoughts and behaviors as well as way more complicated than we ever thought, way more complicated. And I think we have a lot more work ahead of ourselves and that it really depends on things like intensity of a given psychological state, the context in which it occurs, and sort of just the way we approach trying to achieve it in the first place. Um, so in other words, I think balance, um, intensity, um, context and timing are important. and. Uh, as psychologists, um, I mean, always I sort of go back and think, you know, how much we can learn from philosophy as we sort of try to move forward in understanding human nature, too. Um, so that's, that's, I think, what has happened in the past couple of years, and I hope that we kind of continue to move forward in, in realizing just how much more complicated human emotions are than we, I think, ever thought possible. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. It felt as if, in a way, there was a, yeah. there's like a, a struggle in the remarks that you made between two visions of what a theory of emotion should deliver on. Yeah. So one vision is that what it should deliver on is tell us whether it's good or bad, right? Mm -hmm. And then another theory is that it should tell us what its function is and what role it plays mm -hmm. in the psychological system. And if you thought of other kinds of psychological systems like vision, it would never occur to you to ask the question, like the visual system, good or bad? The question would be, what, kind, what, is, what is its functional role? How does it enable yeah. behavior? Right. And I wonder whether, in a way, it's kind of been a poison pill for yeah. research in positive psychology, that it's the kind of thing that it seems like one would want to have a lot of, but that sets up a question which is really a red herring. Um, so in thinking about what yeah. the function of positive psychology was, the other thing that struck me about your remarks is this asymmetry. Lots of bad emotions kind of sort of seems like just one good emotion. You were saying we mm -hmm. could draw some distinctions, yeah. but just at a broad level, it did feel like there's disgust, there's fear, there's anger, yeah. and then there's just happiness. So yeah. do you, I guess I was yeah. just curious why. I mean, is there? Yeah. can you think of a reason at a functional level why we ought to have many different flavors and varieties of negative emotion, but why, if you were going to design a good psychological system, it would actually be best just to have one kind of generic goodness? The answer is no, I can't. And I try to think, why did this start in the first place? And perhaps, you know, when we think of sort of our early categorization systems of emotion, a lot of it came from facial expressions, right? That they were thought to be these automatic universal signals of emotion. And at least when it comes to different kinds of positive emotions, they're not all readily apparent in the face. We have this sort of Duchenne smile that's supposed to signal some kind of joy. But then there's a lot more that goes on when we think about the way that our body, through nonverbal behaviors, touch, 
vocal intonations that, that help differentiate at the behavioral level positive emotions. So I think perhaps one reason why it began is because when we were looking at cultural universal displays of emotion, um, at least at the beginning there seemed to be one that, yeah. Um, but I think, I think any sort of functional account of emotion would suggest now that perhaps there may even be a wider variety of positive emotions than negative emotions. You know, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, there's these taxonomies that have been developed that show, you know, distinct cognitive appraisals that uniquely differentiate. You know, you can look at classes of self versus other-oriented positive emotions. And then you can also look at emotions that sort of take us outside of ourselves completely and sort of give us a perspective on the broader world, things like awe and inspiration. And, um, they're incredibly important for us. And, you know, there's recent work suggesting they have different vocalizations and that even these positive emotions can be distinctly and reliably communicated through physical touch. Um, and so I think what needs to be done is simply to, um, for, for whatever reason, this negative bias we had on emotions, because um, we thought that in many ways they were causes of suffering, that they led us astray, they made us these irrational beings. Um, now we're sort of catching up and seeing just how important they are for us. And the more we sort of take in a, a profiled approach to look at distinct varieties of positive emotion, the more we're going to better understand the different sort of psychological functions they have and bear in our everyday lives. Yeah. But I think you're exactly right. And I don't, that, it's interesting thing think about why there was this value system placed on emotion, but not, right, on, on vision science per se. And I think it gets even more complicated when you talk about value systems and we think of cross-cultural value systems. I mean, much of the positive psychology movement is driven by um, sort of westernized U.S. notions of positive emotions. And so as a result, it's focused on high arousal positive states um, as opposed to had it emerged, you know, in more collectivistic cultures, it might have focused on more low arousal positive emotion states. So we seem to care a lot about emotions and have value systems, and I think that has sort of clouded our scientific judgment and sort of oper operationalization of, of where to begin and what, what these are. Yeah. So I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I have yeah. one question, which is, touches on the last thing that you were sort of talking about, and mm -hmm. two things that might be related. I'm struggling to understand are emotions the end goal state themselves? Or are emotions merely the signal of some goals, goal state? In other words, just take a totally different analogy. Say, my goal is to be rich. But the signal could be, oh, people drive BMWs who are rich. So I could say, I'm going to go get a BMW. That's not going to make me rich. <laughs> so I'm just trying to understand, is the emotion and I guess I mean this both normatively. Yeah. So that could be one way in which we could be giving bad advice. We're saying to people, think positive, you know, be happy, yeah. think positive. But that's not what you're looking for, those things that generate it. Right, right. But I also am just even trying to understand this positively. That is, is and when we understand the decisions people make, mm -hmm. how do they think about what they're trying to accomplish? Are they mistaken to be chasing mm -hmm. this? Do they understand what... And that's, I think, related yeah. to my second question. In yeah. what you talked about, you were sort of taking these reports of emotions, and maybe there's much more literature. So I'd love to just yeah. hear more about, yeah. when I think about my own emotional state, don't worry, this is, I'm not going <laughs> 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 to think about my own emotional state, it's almost yeah. like an illusion in my mind that I can report it. It feels like as I yeah. gain maturity, one thing that I learn is that actually my emotional state is not as accessible to me as I thought it was. Yeah. And how... How do we think about those things? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. Um, so to start with the first point, I think, so it's interesting because 
when we look at some of the most basic accounts of what emotions are in terms of are they the goal themselves or are they simply uh, a pathway to get to the goal? I mean, many ways what we think of emotions doing as sort of eliciting a certain set of action tendencies or behaviors that are going to help get us towards a goal. So an emotion is a signal to us. It's a source of information. And that information is going to guide us to sort of decide, do I approach or avoid that particular person? But it's not the emotion itself that's the goal. It's the emotion that gives you information to sort of set you off on behaviors that are going to get you to your goal, right? So I would say many emotion theorists wouldn't, would not think of emotion as the goal in and of itself. That being said, if you sort of ask, you know, people's perhaps everyday intuitions about emotions, and you say sort of, you know, ask them about their goals in life, well, it's to be happy. My goal is to be happy. My goal is to feel less sad and less anxious. And even from sort of a, a clinical psychology perspective, you know, working with patients who come into therapy, their goals are often very emotionally defined. They want to minimize negative emotion uh, intensity, usually generally speaking, um, and maximize positive emotion intensity. And I think what we need to do is sort of use this information and sort of leverage it in sort of an educational way to say, well, emotions are certainly important you know, facets of our lives. They, they give us information and they, they, they signal to us something, but they're not the goal itself. And so I think that's, that's the confusion. I think that many people have this desire to want to move towards emotion as the goal when it's anything but that. It's sort of what are the behaviors that happen after the emotion is elicited and do they take you towards or away from where you want to be going? Can I ask you Yes. Just quick clarification on this because it strikes me that we talk, and I think it's an American thing to be honest, just focus on happiness as the goal. But even you, when you're talking about your goals, you you frame it as if, well, uh, if we just stop focusing on being happy, it'll make us more happy. (laughs) And so it's even an end goal for for in in your talk. Mm -hmm. And it's it strikes you know when I my parents being the immigrants that they are. uh, always would tell me, you know, it's weird to say I'm doing it to make myself happy. Mm-hmm. And many, many times I opt to do things that will make me very unhappy knowing so because I have a goal. And sure, yeah. like at some yeah. ultimate level, like I, I want to achieve yeah. all of my goals and presumably that happiness is the signal that I've achieved the goals, but I don't ever feel directly motivated by an attempt at happiness. That's a good thing. <laughs> I, I think it is. I think it is. And, and I think that it's weird to make happiness the goal because then let's just pop ecstasy. What about you know? <laughs> All right, let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. Well, I already did. <laughs> no, I think you're right. And I think that's, it's funny because you totally caught me and that's exactly <laughs> it. So just don't try to be happy, right? And then you'll be happy. And then you'll be happy, yeah. right? <laughs> And I think a lot of what people are focusing on now, especially in the past, you know, five or so years, is this idea of mindful acceptance, of not focusing on maybe any one particular emotion that you ought to feel or ought not to feel, but simply being present with whatever emotions you have, right? And that sort of takes the spotlight away from emotions as a goal, but more just focuses on being and experiencing whatever emotions you have and using them as pieces of information, right? to tell you something important about the environment and about yourself. So that's just, that's one approach and there's many different kinds of approaches out there, but I think they're all important insofar as they're telling us to sort of get away from sort of looking at, at emotion as sort of the end goal. To, to what extent so. is, is the whole construct of happiness cultural? Yeah. I, I noticed just yeah. the word oh, drove yeah. Dr. Kahneman from the 
<laughs> and I, I've never framed my life in terms of happy. No, uh, I mean, to and, be and I wonder, like, how much yeah. of this is driven by Prozac? <laughs> it's 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 a scary time right now. I think. Um, I mean, one, the word happiness. What does it even mean? I think is is one thing, and I think people are really. I mean, this has been an age-old question of what does happiness mean, but I think the problem right now is that it's used in incredibly vague and interchangeable ways to mean all kinds of things. Um, and I think um, when this then gets disseminated to the public, it becomes really tricky because people just have this word of happiness. Maybe it's something about a, a bigger sense of you know, subjective well-being, or maybe it's just sensory pleasure in the moment. But they just know that that's something that they ought to have, right? And so, right, we see a host of prescription rates skyrocketing. And, you know, you could hope that maybe it's just more accurate detection and diagnosis of depression in this day and age. But, but you have to wonder if it's more something else and being driven by this, this zest to sort of minimize negative and, and, and maximize positive. Um, so, so it worries me in this day of happiness because I think what it also does is... Um, and I think this is especially an American problem, is pushes us away from just simply experiencing negative emotions, too, that are incredibly rich sources of information for us and incredibly important components of what give us rich and meaningful lives. Um, What's the science here? Yeah, so in terms no, you of... You have a lab, but... Yeah. What, what, what does an experiment consist of? And studying emotion, what does it right. look like, yeah. just at a general level? Well, in yeah. a particular level. Yeah, so um, let me think of a good experiment in our lab. So one of the studies that we've done have been to try to look at emotional responses. Um, Lori will remember this task. Um, emotional responses that are self-referential. So what we do when we study emotion is we take a multi-componential approach. So we'll bring someone into the lab. And in one study, we were trying to look at the experience of self-conscious emotions. And so we had people... Um, come into the lab, they sit in front of a computer screen, and what we're doing with them is, are three things. We're measuring them simultaneously. We're measuring their subjective or self-reported emotion. That's one piece of emotion. It may not be the truth, but it's, but it's an important component. Two, we are videotaping participants and coding their expressive signatures of emotion in their face, um, coding them using many different standardized systems, FACS, SPAF, all these things that look at features of emotion, and then we look at their physiological signatures. Would you like the tapes from today? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll code them. Um, and what we think is that you can't say anything about emotion from any one single channel. Um, it's going to lead you down the wrong path. So in studies like this, we'll have people sing along to a karaoke task, um, and then unbeknownst to them, they have to watch the video themselves. Poor Lori did this for me once. and uh, it's, shown, it's shown in lots of Jude's talks, which is one of the reasons I was excited we didn't have PowerPoint. <laughs> <laughs> you were good, though. You didn't get embarrassed. Um, but what we're doing here is we're really trying to quantify, like, when a person has an emotional response, which component is most centrally featured? Is it something about their subjective representation? Is it what they're signaling or communicating to others? Is it shifts in their body? You know, their heart rate, their skin conductance, their temperature, their breathing. Um, and then we also do some studies taking people into the scanner, too, and trying to understand neural mechanisms at that level. But I think when you study emotion, what you really need to do is at every single moment be looking at it simultaneously across multiple levels of analysis. Your, your yeah. last comment. Uh, yeah. We need to mm -hmm. bring this together with philosophy. Yeah. It's coincidental with the publication of Leon Weasel here. 
mm-hmm. attack on science today, uh, mm-hmm. saying that philosophy tells us about happiness, not science. Uh, what's, what's, what do you have to say about that? Mm-hmm. Her, her comment, not... Yeah. I don't want to say anything about Leon. No, about uh, <laughs> <laughs> final comment. Um, I mean, what is you mentioned philosophy? in passing um, mm-hmm. uh, a study which showed that cheerful kids had a higher mortality, uh, mm-hmm. risk of mortality, mm-hmm. and I thought, no, that's not, that doesn't surprise me in a way, because I remember mm-hmm. when my children were young, I remember talking to a wise older colleague and saying, you know, I'm really worried about our kids because they're having this sort of ideal upbringing. It's a very nurturing house and they've got books and music and everything is perfect. Oh, no. And and I'm just afraid they're going to be soft as grapes and be completely vulnerable when they get out in the real world. They won't have been tested at all, uh, uh, emotionally tested. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he had a very wise response. He said, don't worry, they'll make their own trouble. <laughs> uh, and he was right. Uh, but, um, uh, and, the, and recovered from it, of course, and learned a great deal from it. But there is this yeah. question of whether we're making a big mistake yeah. in trying to sort of cocoon our children mm-hmm. in a world of positive emotions yeah. and shield them from uh, ever yeah. really experiencing fear or loneliness or boredom. And uh, I wonder, what you, what, have you done, has there been research on that? Yeah, I think your, abs- your intuition is absolutely right. And um, there's been some work on this. We've been doing some with a, a colleague of ours, Michael Norton, that many of you know, looking at this concept of emotional diversity. Um, and if you think about it just within a broader sense of ecosystems, diversity is, is really important for you know, health and survival of, of that particular system. And we've sort of taken this looking at sort of the inner sort of psychological system and sort of what, what is most important for sort of well-being. And when we, looked at, when we talked about well-being, we're talking about not only psychological functioning, but actually physical health functioning. So we have these large medical reports from people. And what we're finding is that it's the diversity of emotional experiences that both cross-sectionally and longitudinally are predicting some of our best outcomes. So you want like a mixture of things it's fine to have some sort of joy, but you also want sadness. You want the experience of guilt. You want the experience of, you know, loss. All of these things are really important in sort of keeping us, um, I would say, building sort of a, a psychological strength to know how to experience these emotions, to know how to cope with them, and to, I think, get information from, from the world around you, too. So I think in terms of, you know, how does this relate to raising children, I think as much as you can expose them to different kinds of emotions and not let any one kind predominate, I think that's what's going to be most critical is sort of the diversity of experiences at the affective level. I have one more you know, question. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I was just going to ask, yeah. uh, you know, what your thoughts are on the functional kind of emotions that includes not only their internal function, but also their interpersonal function. And mm-hmm. the thing that's interesting to me about emotions yeah. is not what you feel inside, but the fact that, mm-hmm. that I display the emotion and that yeah. not only do you read it, mm-hmm. but you mm-hmm. copy it, that there's a kind of emotional contagion, which is a very fundamental feature to my eye of emotion. So you, mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. are depressed, you become depressed or anxious or happy. And that's, that was something I'm very curious about your thoughts on, this, this interpersonal account of emotions, not just the intrapersonal account. Well, yeah, it's so interesting. So I, I teach this course on emotion, and when I ask students to, you know, provide an example of a time they remember experiencing some, you know, memorable emotion, 
they always talk about it in social contexts. Um, usually it's about people, but often it's with people. And um, many people would say that our emotions are inherently relational and interdependent, right? And that the function of our emotions is not to sort of keep us as individuals navigating the world, but it's to connect us to other people and to sort of relate to them in it. Yeah, so I would say, yeah. in a way, yeah. your account, the use of information, I would say emotions yeah. might not be about the acquisition of information from the environment, but the delivery of information to the environment. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. So I... Yeah. A conspicuous signal of mental health. Of a variety yeah. of things. Yeah, I mean, there's been some fascinating studies looking at exactly what you're talking about, which is sort of this mimicry or contagion of emotion and finding, um, for example, in married couples, that those who had the best sort of marital... So, you know, quality in terms of self-reporting satisfaction were those who played this dance. They had this mimicry, not only at the subjective level, looking at continuous rating dials of emotion as they were interacting with each other, but even looking at physiological signatures that have been thought to co-vary with the experience of positive emotion, they were in sync with one another, right? As one person's sort of level, looking at cardiac vagal tone shifted, so did the others. And so it seems to be what's most important in this case is not what emotions you're experiencing with the partner, but that you're in sync with one another. And there's a sense of, of, of almost coherence between partners, not just within an individual. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you.